Hello everyone, welcome to episode 2 of Gossip, a podcast series where we discuss and try to better understand alternative perspectives on issues. The podcast series is part of Chris Network's ongoing efforts to create a safer space for discourse on gender inequality issues and human rights. My name is Angela Kugadas and I will be your host for today. Our topic today is equal pay for work of equal value and we're happy to have with us two researchers from Kazana Research Institute No Suraya Sazali and Siti Aisha Tumin, and Chong Yishan, who is a member of the Central Committee of PSM and works with the National Union of Workers in Hospital Support and Allied Services for Better Labour Rights. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me here. Thank you for having us here too. Thank you. So the first topic that I want to sort of uh, talk about this particular uh, right of equal pay for work of equal value was actually one of the demands of the Women's March in 2019. And many of the women marchers were actually attacked for this particular demand. Men were saying that, uh, what are you complaining? Men didn't understand why women were asking for this demand. Mm. Men thought that, oh, well, you're going out to work, you know, uh, you should be happy with your Mm. lot. The Department of Statistics also show that just based on this uh, survey, on salaries and wages survey report, it's only about a hundred ringgit difference, right? But we also have the global gender gap score in wage equality, which shows actually a 26% difference. So what's actually happening on the ground? Do we really have a difference in pay gap, right, between women and men? Suraya, would you like to take this question? Um, right. Uh, again, thank you so much for having me. Um, I feel that this idea is highly contested and highly argued in the public sphere because that's actually a difference between gender pay gap, equal pay for equal work, and equal pay for equal value. These are actually three very different things. The statistics that you mentioned is just an average. So salary and wages survey is just, you know, um, they surveyed um, employees. So they exclude self-employed, includes employers, um, but they surveyed households that working in both public and private spheres. What I'm trying to say is I think that one of the core problem of why this topic is highly contested is because the statistics, the available statistics that we have does not answer the questions that we really want to answer. So let just me unpack it a little bit. So the average, right? So you mentioned, um, I'll just cite the average wages um, between men and women in 2019. So men is about 3,300,000 K, and then women's about 3,100 K per month. So the difference is about 200 ringgits. And then if you do a simple um, differences, it's about 6%. And and then you mentioned about the global um, wage gap. Yeah. Number one, the global wage gap maybe use a different calculations to come up with that percentage. And then for DOS, it's a, it's a clear just a, a wage difference between those two. Uh, I would just like to unpack like averages, um, rightly or wrongly, people will often just dismiss because like it excludes a lot of other characteristics. Um, it doesn't account for work characteristic and worker characteristics. So people will often argue, well, you don't work in a lucrative um, industry or you don't have the the technical skills, or even your own characteristics, right? You take times off, you uh, don't have a specific qualifications, or you work in a certain states. So these kind of questions to me, as a researcher, are valid. And the point that I want to make is, I feel that um, 
also because of this, the, the sampling of the surveys, other surveys, um, another one that I would like to mention is by ILMIA. Um, ILMIA is actually a part of Department of Statistics. But they, they carry out another surveys uh, where they ask the establishment themselves. And then this include only private establishments from the surveys. Um, and then they say that, okay, their sampling is different from um, the, uh, the salary and wages. But their gap is slightly higher, um, about 15%. So men on average um, earn about 3.5K thousand per month. And women on average um, earn about 3,000 per month. But I feel that the number, the big numbers really do not mean anything and we need to dig deeper. Thank you so much for that. Yishan, what's actually, you know, what's the lived realities of women on the ground? You work with women workers and especially like uh, the more recent case, the hospital workers, the cleaners, mm, right? Mm. So uh, they work in a sector where, you know, it's dominated by women. Mm. Uh, how do we talk about equal pay for work of equal value? Uh, that's actually interesting because uh, like we are working mostly uh, as a hospital cleaner, government hospital cleaner, which are 85% to 90% are women. And we always know that cleaning service or cleaning work is actually like a household kind of work. And we always know that uh, households kind of work is dominated by the women. Like we always see the part-time cleaner sticker everywhere, right? That's mm -hmm. all is a women. And how much people pay them is definitely... Not enough, lah, as what we can see here. But interesting is, when we talk about when uh, Angela talk about the gender gap, about 100 and get different, the irony and, I don't know, interesting or irony part is, actually, they don't have gender page gap among the hospital cleaner. Women and men, they are same. They are living in already a very upper, uh, oppressed uh, working environments, right? So there's no longer what gender you are, but you are uh, suffering from the same. That's really interesting because what basically you're saying is that the type of work then sub subjects that particular worker to a very low wage that is so unreasonable. Yes. You know, that doesn't even help them uh, meet living costs. Mm. Uh, they can't even have savings. Yes. But how then do we, how, you know, like we know household work is not counted in national income, right? Mm. And uh, even some people were saying, oh, how do we actually have a benchmark what kind of value do we give to it and some people even had the shocking assumption that maybe we could use the salaries that we pay domestic workers i mean what does that say to our mothers you know or to homemakers what value they have to to us as a family right so soraya how do we actually put a value right on household work uh, or household type of work Right. Um, I think I'll just pick up on the issue of household work when it's unpaid. Because I, I think it's related to why it's priced so lowly um, in the private sectors. Um, and I'm going to come back to um, uh, one of Kazana Research Institute report um, published in 2019. It's time you survey, time to care. So basically the idea is because our national account doesn't take into the considerations of all the unpaid care but which is necessary like if nobody's doing it, it will not get done it cannot be substituted with anything it has to be done and usually um, uh, women um, and we know this from labor force surveys like the most cited um, reason for exiting the labor market is because of household responsibility mm. and one of the way um, researchers try to price in the um, this unpaid care work is through 
time use survey where they look at the time and then they try to price in the labor the labor income as opposed to to you know um, that can be gained um, subsequently but then I feel that in, in a much larger context I think that there's a there needs to be a more serious discussions on how do we, we price this kind of services because if we don't have cleaner mother anybody's taking care of us our world will go haywire and I think one of the key message in the report itself um, is that this sector cannot be left alone to the private it cannot be like you know who can uh, give the highest price and then um, uh, who can give the best service because it's necessary for everybody so then there needs to be um, uh, a much greater public uh, government engagement to ensure that it's high quality so that labor can be paid appropriately and then it's still affordable for the um, for the average Jews because one of the argument of like um, if you want high quality childcare for example or even care for your elderly um, most people cannot afford it and then mm. what do they do they exit the market and then mm. you create the visit this vicious cycle yeah. where you know only high quality um, reserved for the mm. for the privileged ones mm. so I think it, there's needs to be um, a careful thinking of how can government come in, realizing the importance and the gravity of this um, this service, um, so that ensure that the labor is paid properly, hmm. and then the quality is there, and then um, it is priced appropriately for different segments of the of the society. One aspect, of course, yes, quality of care, right? Mm-hmm. But mm. essential, it is essential. Yes, that, yes. that is the point that That's, you that you is, have yeah. also said, uh-huh. you know, mm-hmm. and that is essentiality. Mm-hmm if there's such a word. <laughs> I mean, the importance of it, the critical role it plays, yeah, is completely ignored, you know, right. like, uh, you know, the, the, this hospital cleaners, right? True. I mean, how do people at the hospital, the, the ones who are the doctors, mm. the, the ones who are working around these cleaners, mm. and even the, the, the company that has hired them, how do mm-hmm. they see them, Yishan? Actually, if you if you work in a film, mm. the the doctor or, or whoever medical officer in the government hospital, mm-hmm. they will have no problem and they will respect the cleaner there mm. because they know without mm. the cleaner, mm-hmm. the hygiene and everything is a problem and they know that no one's gonna do the job if they are not doing the job, mm-hmm. right? So I think uh, most of the uh, medical officer in government hospital, they respect whatever the, the cleaner is doing, right? But who are not value them? Mm-hmm. The minimum wage are not value them. Their employer are not value them. They think they are like a uh, disposal item that they can dispose of anytime, anywhere they want. And, and that is the contract system, right? And, and that's because of the contract system. And I think what is back to the reality is the contract system really putting them in a bad situations where their contract will be renewed. Uh, last time, even worse, every six months or even every year they renew the contract and every time they're changing the new concessions or new contractor coming into taking over the service then the contract will change again and they will start back to like a new employee salary and benefit Mm. welfare stuff like that so many of the workers they've been working for more than 20 years their salary have no different or their welfare have no different from the worker who starting working the first day. The contribution, right? The contribution of this role that predominantly played by mm-hmm. women, yeah, towards 
so-called productivity, mm-hmm. productivity yeah. of the or the profit making of whichever establishment, right? Yes. It's not. It's actually not considered. But like you said, it's essential. Right. It's essential, especially when we have elderly yeah. people. We are we are an aging society. Right. So uh, just to pick up on the, the importance of hygiene. Um. Okay. I cannot remember the source. Um. So I cannot really say that the the statement is completely correct. But I think I've heard people say that the advancements in our um um health or our longevity is not because of the advancements of um the uh the medical services, but because of the hygiene. The quality of hygiene mm. um, that we have improved tremendously. Mm. Um, so yeah, and I feel that this the the shift um, from you know have um, giving everybody uh, permanent positions to contract, the shift itself is truly critical, and then it has actually um, caused a lot of problems in my opinion. Um, and this idea of cost saving through um, changing the the employment contract, mm. it makes sense um, in terms of dollar, in terms of ringgit, mm. in the short term. But I feel that um, we have to think about the long term, and then what are the consequences? Um, and then because it will come full circle, um, like you say that we are aging society. Um, if people don't earn enough, they don't have enough savings. So in the end, um, when they retire, they will have to rely on bantuan orang tua. Yeah. And then what kind of society are we saying that? Oh, if you don't have family, if you don't, you cannot work. Only then you work. What kind of dignity are we giving to to do it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I've exactly. I've watched like a documentary on a you know, uh, it's a it's a nursing home, right? Mm. Uh, run by a Muslim woman. Mm-hmm. And uh, this young man actually said that he has an elderly father there. Mm-hmm. He had to put the elderly father there because mm-hmm. it was beyond his capacity mm-hmm. to give care mm-hmm. and at the same time go to work, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And his father needed like 24 hour, 24-7 full-time care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he also said he doesn't earn enough to get married. Mm-hmm. So then, if we're an aging society, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, Dr. Mohammed Khalid, you know, mm-hmm. who was with DM Analytics has said this, mm-hmm. by 2050, we'll be aging, right? Older, we'll be older, sicker, poorer, childless and homeless. <laughs> and this is scary. Right, right, right. You know, and I think it's especially scary mm-hmm. for young people mm-hmm. uh, who are being told that minimum wage is good enough for them. <laughs> you right, know, right. Uh, the, this also has uh, gender implications. Mm-hmm. Uh, will young men then marry young women just so that they have a caregiver? Yes. Right? And will that mean young women cannot go out to work at all? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yeah. So I think that what Dr. Muhammad said the quotes, right? If we remain the status quo, if we don't change anything right now, then we will have much trouble. I think he cited 2050 because by 2045, we will be an age society, lah, 14% um, above uh, 60 age. And I think, and yeah, rightly so, pointed out there's a gender element because, you know, um, the caregivers is us- uh, are usually mm. women and then, That is backed by you know consistent statistics over mm. over you know over the mm. years. Um, I think like there are two things that we have to be mindful now. Yes, we live longer, but not necessarily healthier. And then this is from the report that um, Kara I actually produced last year, um, State of Household Part Three on Health. Number one, we I think that from the report itself, we need to be um, investing more money in preventive care not just curative, making sure that we can live healthier. That's number one. And then number two, I feel that the care system in Malaysia, we have to be, we have to do something about it now. Do a lot. Do a lot <laughs> before it's 
too late um, yeah. before it's too late because uh, the clock is ticking and um, I know as cliche as it sounds, uh, the best time to uh, plant a seed is just yesterday. The best time now is to plant it now. I think mm. we have yeah. to do it, um, to do something now. But Isha, do you but, think there's political will, I mean, to really address the situation? Because, <laughs> you know, on one part, uh, the Ministry of Women is actually very aware that women's labour force participation rate is very low. Young women may enter the workforce, but once mm. they get married, mm. they, they are forced to leave, mm-hmm. you know, or they feel like they would not be a good mother or a good wife if they mm-hmm. don't leave mm-hmm. and look after their children, right? Mm-hmm. So, so women have always been playing this role mm-hmm. and uh, feeling like it's valid or it's justifiable for them not to go to work. What do you think about this? I think the the, the political will definitely will help to uh, not completely solve the problem, but at least uh, lesser the problem like we see the ageing uh, Society is coming to to twenty forty five. We are already aging. We're going to be yeah. aged. Twenty <laughs> twenty again. Okay, never mind okay. that. <laughs> so I think uh, so because what we can see on the ground, uh, uh, I mean the problem mm. is suddenly like popping up and people starting mm. to look at it because of the pandemic COVID nineteen. Mm. Yeah, right. Exactly. So people are losing job, mm-hmm. and uh, they have to use their own EPF money mm. to help to save themselves, mm-hmm. not government somehow to come up something to mm. help themselves, right? So imagine with the worker, we are not talking about minimum wage, just a average wage about maybe no money salary about 2.8k to 3k, right? How much you in your EPF? And if you withdraw, how about when you get, when you retired? How much you left in that? So that is very problematic. Who That money is supposed to help you on when you are in a bad situations, when you are after your retirement, but now you already empty out, not exactly. completely empty lah, because the government not allowed. But if can, people will empty out because they need the money desperately. Yeah, and the government is not doing anything, right? Mm. So, of course, we also know that the government has come out some uh, policy like they're giving the uh, the pantuan uh, money and sort of things, right? But there's only, it's only help. Uh, a, a very short moment where you cannot uh, uh, you cannot build on it right yeah. yeah so I think if we can have more better solutions on helping on this at least have to come for political view because the ground we can help like kita jaga kita kita pandu kita kind of thing but it's still it's, it's, it's not systematically like, resolving the problem in order to systematically reform that is that must come from the political view which the current government lack of. Let's uh, pick up from where Yishan was talking about the the impact of COVID-19, right? What has it shown us about the state of Malaysian women workers? Siti, would you like to share on that? Hi, thank you for having me. Um, Yeah, picking up on Yishan's uh, point just now, what COVID-19 taught us is, you know, to deal with the public health crises. Um, women in um, the healthcare sector was very, very important. And this goes uh, from hospital cleaners as well as doctors, nurses. And this is one particular sector that has high concentration of women workers. So so one thing that we learned from COVID-19 is the increased demand of workers um, in this particular economic activity. Um, but I think on a more larger scale as well, what has happened um, during the pandemic was also job losses. Mm. And when we look at sectors um, that experience job losses, um, 
quite a bit of them are actually um, economic activities that also have higher shares of women. Mm. Uh, you know, food and beverages and accommodation sectors, for example. Exactly. So the the condition of unemployment there also has an angle of mm. of gender there. Mm. Um, but this is just talking about people who are in the labor market. Another trend that emerged from COVID nineteen was also we saw the increase of women exiting the workforce altogether uh, during the crisis. Mm. And um, although we don't know precisely why, um, but citing back to what um, Suraya has said um, earlier on, which was um, the most common reason why women are out of the workforce is because of care work. Mm. And you know, with school closing down. Childcare facilities closing down during the the MCO, um, women have no choice but to leave the workforce and take up on this care work. Um, and if they cannot, if they have to work from home, for example, they then also have to manage the added burden of care work on top of um, the existing job. So COVID nineteen um, certainly in general uh, saw a lot of economic loss, but for women. Um, I think there's a disproportionate effect in terms of unemployment and exiting the workforce um, mm. altogether. Yeah, Ishan, uh, on the ground, what what was happening with the hospital cleaners or you know other women workers that you might be working with? I think for the hospital cleaner, uh, especially during the pandemic, they are they have government have provided so something or the uh, public have provided something is like they provide the childcare. Uh, facility to the uh, frontliner, right? Mm-hmm. But of course, their frontliner definitions doesn't include the hospital cleaner. So, of course, the hospital cleaner, they also need to take care of their children and stuff like that, right? But they have no access to this uh, childcare service. So, um, they have to, like, somehow to get someone help in their family. It's either their mothers, okay, uh, to take care of the children and stuff like that, which... Uh, grandparents who are lack of knowledge of about the technology stuff like that it's also very difficult to uh, help children to access to especially when we're doing a lot of online classes and stuff like that right um but were they like uh, you know a lot of times like this kind of work is also shift work right so were they opting also more for night shift work or were they you know um Mm. What, did they did they face problems in you know even tapping savings? Did they have savings in the beginning? <laughs> okay, I think uh many uh hospital cleaner many of them actually they are single mother. Mm. It's either they divorced or either their their husband passed away, or or many of them they are single women, mm. single women, elderly single women. We are talking about elderly single women here. So and then or 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 either they are the uh upper the sole household provider. So Bread they are the one who who. Uh, you who, mean like bread breadwinner? Ah uh, yes. So the one who support the family lah. So, in in this scenario, they they have no other kind of job they can go. Eight to five cannot because they have to take care of their children's right. So always they will choose to this kind of work because it provides shift work. So they can work from like. Uh, seven to three, right? So before seven, they got time to prepare the children to go to school. Then after three, they can go back and settle the dinner and pick up the children and stuff like that. So they choose this kind of work or they have to choose for night shift work. So daytime, they can prepare the children's everything or whatever household activity. Then they go to work at night. So they have no choice, but they're forced to go into this kind of job Mm-hmm. And 
so that they can balance oh i hate to say that between the household work and also to to survive lah yeah and this is actually it shouldn't be i mean so much a burden of a women especially they are they are the only one who supporting the family to go back for city say like when you say about most of the women that affected in like food and beverage right so we have so much of cases once the MCOs announced mm. they immediately lost their job mm. Mm. many of them they also like for example same to the working nature uh, they have to take care of their family so they will go to working in a restaurant mm. which provide them flexi hour of working some working at night some working at daytime then they got extra flexibility of the work that they can take care of their family right but that kind of job also not providing them a a permanent job mm. it's like a day pay or a mm. part time kind of job right so when the MCO announced the immediate lost job because we don't need waitress in the restaurant anymore mm. cannot go in the restaurant what and the employer the first staff they were fire is always fire the uh upper the part time staff lah because i don't need to pay them any compensation forever right mm. and i'm more it's like they also disposal what i just dispose them Right, right, and right. I think to pick on Yishan's point as well, when we had that slight period of recovery after the MCO, um, when you look at the share of workers, uh, so because of uh, this whole restrictions on business activities, you reduce working hours, right? Mm-hmm. When uh, when we continue, we we try to extend the work uh, the working hours after the MCO. The one that got reabsorbed back are actually um, male workers and and not the female workers. Mm-hmm. So um, even that again, you know, if you have reduced working hours and if you're paid by hourly, um, this really has like consequences on the income of workers who depend on these jobs as well. Mm. Right, right. Mm. But doesn't that point then to what we're giving importance to, right? I mean, the lessons from COVID-19, I think, really points to how important it is to have an economy that is resilient, right? That is sustainable. Um, mm. Whereas a lot of times the economic drivers that we talk about or that the government sort of places importance on is on sort of macroeconomic drivers mm. uh, that favor capital owners uh, so right now you know there's so much discussion about foreign direct investment and how that's depleting or dwindling but you know what about issues like or what has been uh, important to workers on the ground living wage for example mm. is that seen as an economic driver or is that considered like too micro per se mm. So I think the the bias that we have on you know investment figures, these unfortunately are all backed by you know years of economists trying to value different factors mm. of production, mm. um, and and the reason why policymakers, regardless of their parties, um, mm. will still focus on investment yes. because the numbers do show that mm. um, the largest um, mover in terms of how well we are doing is investment mm. money. Yes. Um, And and that's not just a Malaysia thing; it's also an international mm. thing. Every country values um, investment. Um, fair point. Um, but I think you are absolutely right that um, it, it's the value of work that we have not managed to really conceptualize, mm. measure, and then appropriately put it in um, mm. what we call this production function of the economy. Mm. Because you can have all the money in the world. If there's no one to work on it, there's not there's no value generated there. Yeah, there's no profit. Exactly, and definitely, I think um, the movement uh, for you know uh, fair pay for fair work, um, the movement for decent living wages is is 
is the 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 direction that we should be heading towards um mm. minimum wage particularly is very very important especially for low skilled workers sorry um i want to take that out especially mm. for less skilled workers or mm. low paid workers um mm. in in the case of ishan for example you know people uh, unfortunately companies just rely on the threshold of minimum wages so um and malaysia only adopted minimum wage mm. um in 2013 so it's mm. relatively quite new and revisions is something that you know we need to like actively talk about um but, but which <laughs> companies are actually embracing this i mean you know we we even don't even have a picture of like uh, where our labor is right in mm. terms of the this this threshold right because a lot of people just because they see you know very rich women business owners right they think like oh yeah, everything's fine, fine you know yes. but we actually have a majority of people i think on sort of the lower paid lower yeah. paid sort of type of work right yeah. and i think um the the research that you know KRI did uh, showed that mm. the labor share of national income is actually very low mm. you know compared to others so mm. which companies are actually embracing this like mm. okay we really do need to value our workers um or which companies should be doing this mm. so um that's an interesting take which is to shift it to to companies right and i think before we move there we we have to understand the structure of companies in malaysia is largely smes so in the case mm. of uh, you know selected uh, large companies that are not paying uh, minimum wage or you know showing you know gross mistreatment of workers rightly so they they need to be called out for that and and um you know policy makers and regulators need to ask why are you not paying your workers up to the standard but we also have to remember that um there is also large shares of SMEs mm. and SMEs might not be able to pay as high as we hope uh, they they need to pay and i think you know um hesitance on say revising the minimum wage frequently um i think is a reflection of we don't know if our SMEs can uh, be able to pay um high level of of, of wage but out of curiosity the 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 national income right because mm-hmm. when we talk about national income we know like the large companies the large corporations are contributing so much to national mm-hmm. income right what is the just you know just for our knowledge sake what is the proportion of that national income um that is contributed by our SMEs do we do do they actually contribute enough i think even though we have many right on the top of my head um i don't think they differentiate it by size ah, okay. i can check and get back to you on that and in fact right even um you're rightly like you know large companies have higher value added but then they don't employ large segments of the workforce so mm-hmm. if you say you want to increase the threshold and just focus on this large value added companies you must also remember it will only affect the small share of workers that they have and actually mm. if you look at the numbers people who work in uh, you know larger uh, multinational corporations um glcs for example those who are categorized as employees do get uh, quite well paid so it's it's really um I think going back mm. to to not just thinking about one type of company but also thinking okay your you're this type of company but you also engage with SMEs for example are you making sure that the contracts that you have with you know smaller companies can allow the companies to pay good wages for their workers for example 
Or is it just, you know, you're you're tapping on the fact that they're not paying their workers high enough level that you can save costs. So it's, it's I think you have to, to understand it in the form of linkages uh, between these different companies. That's a really interesting point mm-hmm. because there has been a move, you know, to get businesses to actually try to uphold human rights, mm-hmm. you know. And they actually look at the linkage, like you mm-hmm. said, the production, the production line, right? And who they're hiring, etc. Uh, and whether they can actually ensure um, that these sort of violations don't happen on the ground or, or you know, whoever they partner with in terms of the production, right? Mm. So on the ground, Yishan, um, are women workers discussing about the minimum wage that they're receiving or do they even know about living wage? Do they know about um, what kind of support that government is actually giving to their employers and how they can access that? Mm. I think... Uh for hospital cleaners, as example, right, uh, they definitely feel that the minimum wages are far not enough for them. Okay. And uh, so actually many of them, they have to work two ships a day. So they've been working for 12 hours in order to support their family. So we can clearly see that the minimum wage are not enough to support them. And we are not talking about the uh, big city or urban area hospital. We are talking about rural area hospital. They are workers who have to work two shifts in one day. So to support the family, imagine that the urban area, how much work they have to do, right? So the minimum is definitely, they're aware about it. Therefore, they ask, they always look for a second job and more job in order to support them. And uh, for the access to whatever pantuan or any uh, they can have, uh, most of them actually, they're aware because they are actually also B40. Mm-hmm. So... B40 in some uh, religions, they are quite uh, take care by the masjid mm-hmm. and so on, right? So they are, or the local community. Lah. So they're aware there's a pantuan here and there. They can, some somehow they can help. But some who are not, uh, who have no this kind of network or community network, right? So they will be totally left off. So for example, like we see uh, one cases is when the government said you can uh, withdraw your money from the EPF. Mm. So they need the money because during that time, uh, many online classes going on, their children need gadget, mm-hmm. laptop for the online classes, which they have no saving to buy those stuff. But their children need to access to the education, right? So they need the about the EPF money in order to buy all this gadget. So they even, so then they have uh, no access to how to do that and whether are there have enough money to withdraw from their account mm. they have such a such a low wage right do they have enough money in their EPF account so that they can withdraw money mm. so this is actually sometimes I feel like when people say yeah, they want to withdraw their EPF let them withdraw lah. what is the problem yeah but can you imagine there are also people who can't even withdraw their EPF money because they don't have enough EPF money to withdraw you know mm, mm, mm. Uh, I remember there's some criteria in order to withdraw right, your account right. one or two but now they free it up um, you know if you apply you will get it yeah account one and account two but this is also very dangerous imagine this and, and remember I said many of them they they have already such a low saving in the IPF mm. they already withdraw a certain amount of it mm-hmm. in order to you know 
whatever emergency here. They went after they are retired. Mm-hmm. 60 yeah. years old. Right. Mm-hmm. How, how about that? So they have not enough money for that. Yeah, I mean, in other countries, they actually have like uh, insurance schemes mm-hmm. where, you know, for loss of income, right? Mm-hmm. They, they, and the insurance then kicks in. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, we know insurance companies are in cahoots mm-hmm. also with mm-hmm. private hospitals. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Also, but um, we actually also have this mm-hmm. kind of system we call SIP, Scheme yeah. Insurance Packager. Mm-hmm. So this is, but this is also for people Employees who are only. employee yeah. and permanent work. But yeah. if you are contractual, like contract, yeah. uh, because in hospital cleaner it's a contract yeah. work, but with all EPF and SOSO and SIP as well, lah. Mm. But we talk about precarious worker, mm. yeah, yeah. women in a restaurant, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. where there's no in, security at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so the, they don't have the SIP when they lost up the complete yeah. lots or the upper social safety yes. network right. to help them in the job. Yeah. yeah. Can I just add? Um, very quickly to your point sure. on um, retirement as well and then we know that just from the data released by EPF um, women tend to have lower retirement savings yes. and then only that they retire earlier and then they live longer we we we, we <laughs> retire earlier I forgot that not necessarily uh, not necessarily on average yeah. and on average yeah. so it's 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 really scary um, you know yes. for the situation to happen yeah and actually like one of the you know on top of less the lots of lessons we've learned from COVID-19 is actually the the very important need of this employment insurance scheme. Mm-hmm. And currently now, it's only covering only employees. Mm-hmm. But a lot of government assistance was channeled through you being on the system. Mm-hmm. But mm. um, thinking of ways for us to include more workers, you know, even contract workers as part of that. And even, I think, um, to be a bit more uh, ambitious about it, you know, perhaps considering people who are looking for job but not employed yet mm-hmm. so one of the conditions of SIP is for you to be employed first and then you contribute exactly. but what about you know um, women who um, you know are not formally employed for example or even um, young people who are still looking for job but they don't have access to things mm-hmm. like you know job search allowance or even a lot of the training mm-hmm. programs mm-hmm. and employment services that Picasso mm-hmm. has and um, I feel like um, you know one of the discussion is, is, is I think important to have is how do we increase um, public sector capacity to be able to help uh, people um, regardless of their employment status, right? Mm-hmm. Um, re- like, I think the importance of Percaso as an agency is, is one mm. thing we should recognize, mm-hmm. but um, it should be something that that we, um, you know, strengthen and make it less political, more of it's an institution responsible. Mm-hmm. And regardless of the change of government, if that is your job scope, that is your job scope. But how do we make that a reality, right? Because um, we know that a lot of these schemes don't reach uh, workers in the informal sector, mm-hmm. you know, the ones like Yishan have been describing. Mm. Um, you have to go on the ground, ketok every door and ask, are you part of um, SIP? Are you part of the... Uh, employment um, injury is you know self-employment injury scheme for example it requires deliberate and you know a very strong um, support uh, from the institutions themselves and also workers willingness to to contribute 
Um, and I think, uh, you know, by leveraging on, uh, um, you know, PSM, for example, or even mm. workers association and even local councils, you know, they are the ones who give out licenses for people to set up shop and things like that. The importance is actually to be able to link this, you know, small ways of, of uh, um, how, how public service works in, in a local context, linking it back to federal system where, you know, in case of a crisis, that's where the help comes from. And, and my personal view is we have to be able to make them part of the formal institution because that is where most of the assistance, um, how, how it's channeled. Okay. Uh, Can I just add, I think like one of the, uh, I think, crucial missed opportunity is, um, at least if you're a Malaysian citizen, you have national identifications. And then supposedly with your IC, um, we can check whether mm. you are part of the system. Oh, I think yet. that's, a, we, we have the numbers, um, infrastructure-wise, I'm not so sure. But I feel that, you know, in other more developed countries, I guess, is by right, um, you have by right, by being born, right? You have the right to all this um, safety yeah. net system. And then it's not haphazard, it's not like depending on your political will. Mm -hmm. um, there's a mechanism, okay, if you're in shock, regardless of economic shocks, or you go through like lifetime shocks, you have that system because you, mm. you are a contributing um, mm. member of society. Mm. Mm. But in a scenario where like globally, mm -hmm. um, you know, governments have actually, you know, sort of shifted their responsibility, right? <laughs> to privatized mm. <laughs> services, yeah. mm. you know? Uh, is is this a practical ask of government today? Yes. You know? I think so. I think, yeah. Because yeah. when COVID during the COVID-19, mm -hmm. the definitely government contract it out. <laughs> the, whatever right. yeah. they're, they're supposed to do to the public, which, mm. no, it's, it's not supposed to come it's, from public to help the, mm. the, the the vulnerable group in the mm. society, right? Exactly. I, I feel yeah. that the COVID-19, I think in every shock, I, to me at least, um, in most shocks, when it happens, it's actually showcase all the gaps, right? Um, I think social protection discussion has never been this vibrant before, yeah. um, how important it is mm -hmm. to make sure that you lay um, the net, um, because otherwise, because you know that, you know, who knows when's the next shock will happen and then we see that the the magnitude is getting bigger and bigger mm -hmm. so um city the the you know i mean it really points to economic resilience right mm -hmm. i mean do have are there lessons from other countries uh you know how do we make sure that this happens you know that will definitely benefit society mm -hmm. right because we do want quality of living, mm. right? And we we can see that, you know, if, if these kinds of pandemics happen or crises happen, there's so much cost on the ground. Mm. And that also then takes a toll on whatever services, you know, uh, public services like healthcare services, etc. Uh, it will create an even greater demand on, on these services. Mm. So, you know, listening to all these, right, uh, aspects about our economic resilience, how, how do we move forward, City? In my personal view, how we move forward is really to have a little bit more welfare-centric kind of mm. economic model. And mm. if we see advanced countries, you know, in Scandinavia, um, it, 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 you need to prioritize the welfare of people. 
um, in order for you to, you know, have sustainable growth. And, you know, the welfare approach um, must not be something that's tied only to employment status. You know, just because I'm working um, and then I have access to all these benefits, which is true in itself, but also we have mm-hmm. to think about those whose work is not even valued. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, moving towards, uh, you know, thinking about, for example, um, universal child benefit mm-hmm. or maternal income protection or even mm-hmm. a notion of social, uh, sorry, social pension, being able to protect as many workers as possible, mm-hmm. regardless of where they start mm-hmm. from, how their working life ends up. But all of us in solidarity take responsibility of taking care of each other. That can only happen if, you know, from the policy standpoint, point, from the institution standpoint, that is something that we prioritize. And I think we 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 have those notions actually in a lot of our Malaysia plans. You know, you know, Malaysia cares about investment and whatnot. But actually, it's not as if we've never provided assistance for certain groups that are disadvantaged. We have that in our DNA as a country. It's just time to ramp it up and make sure it's as inclusive as possible and building strong, resilient institutions along the way so that, you know, it doesn't get hijacked by politics, for example, mm. or get hijacked by, you know, special interest um, mm. of people that we don't want to, you know, dampen how we see progress in the future. So thank you so much for sharing all your views, um, you know, the, the lived realities on the ground, um, you know, how we should actually move forward with uh, this issue about taking care of our workers, right, taking care of labour, um, and also to ensure that uh, this welfare-centric approach is um, is not tied to politics, because I think that mm. is one of the biggest challenges, you know, the unequal power dynamics mm. that we face here. So thank you again to Noor Suraya and Siti Aisha from Kazana Research Institute and Chong Yishan from PSM and the uh, National Union for Hospital Cleaners. We really heard some interesting thoughts on the value of labour in our economy and misperceptions of equality just because we see women going out to work and earning an income. Thank you again for spending time with us today and sharing your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you for Chris for having me here. Thank you. Thank you for having us here. I really enjoyed the chat too. If you enjoyed listening to Gossip, do follow us and stay tuned for our next episode. We'll be talking about online gender-based violence. You can find Chris Network on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Remember, Gossip is where alternative perspectives make sense.